Welcome to the Anthro to UX podcast, where you will learn how to break into UX with an anthropology degree. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in user experience, you will learn firsthand how others made the transition, what they learned along the way, and what they would do differently. We will be discussing what it means to do UX research from a practical perspective and what you need to do to prepare a resume and portfolio. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of the Anthro to UX podcast. I'm here today with Olive Miner. Olive is a user experience researcher at Anthro Tech in the social impact space, and she was previously at Etsy, Blink, and Google. So, Olive, would you mind by starting by telling everybody how you came into anthropology? Of course, and thank you so much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here with you. Um, so the anthropology origin story for me is, um, I think, um, from the time I was a little kid, I just always had this drive to, to want to understand and connect with other people. It's kind of like the fundamental drive in my life. Um, and so, you know, grew up and went to college thinking that I would study psychology because at the time that was the only field I knew about that kind of tackled some of those questions I was really interested in about what drives people's behavior and what motivates them and what um, informs what they do and how. Um, But when I actually got to college, um, and this will date me a little bit, I remember going through the course catalog by hand and circling in pencil the courses that sounded interesting to me, and they all landed in anthropology, sociology, and religious studies. And I think what attracted me to that was, um, and I still love the way that anthropology is able to connect all different types of scales um, that inform human activity from, you know, the global political economic all the way down to looking at everyday micro interactions between different individuals. Um, And so ended up pursuing that track and um, just loved the study of anthropology um, and sociology that um, enough that I ended up pursuing it all the way through the PhD level. I studied at Northwestern and um, ended up spending several years working with um, the LGBTQ community in Kampala, Uganda, specifically working with uh, transgender and gender non-conforming people. Um, The dissertation had to do with um, basically how people navigated visibility and risk in this, at the time, really politically fraught context where um, the Ugandan parliament had introduced this terrible anti-homosexuality bill targeting this community um, <clears throat> and was pursuing a master's in public health alongside that. And so ended up looking at what access to HIV prevention and treatment services looked like for that, for that population. Um, so at the same time that I was pursuing um, this education in anthropology, I, I had the sense going into graduate school that I did want to do applied work. Um, you know, I, I, I actually loved graduate school and I think there's enormous value in producing knowledge just for its own sake, but I come from a very uh, service oriented family and, and had the feeling that I personally wanted to be solving problems and, and having some sort of measurable or real world impact So I pursued this um, master's in public health alongside the PhD, thinking that perhaps the field of global health would be a place where you could apply these anthropology skills in a way that would have some sort of, um, you know, measurable impact. 
Um, so yeah, that's sort of the the background story. And I, I spent the first part of my career um, doing work that in retrospect is really similar to user research, or I think I was trying to reinvent user research without at the time knowing what it was. So I was using these anthropological approaches and perspectives, you know, using qualitative research methods to try to understand the needs and perspectives and experiences of a target group of people. Um, so for example, at one point recently resettled refugees in the U S and using insights from those groups of people to try to inform improvements to a program or a policy or an advocacy strategy. And then of course, more recently, maybe a design or an app or something like that. Um, but this was, um, this was all kind of before I had even heard of human-centered design or user research. So now you, you said that you had this interest in applied out of curiosity. Were you thinking of it as like applied work or did you know that you just wanted to get out there and work? You know, were you thinking of it as the term of applied anthropology or did you actually hear that? I think I was at the time because in applying to graduate schools, you know, I was looking at programs like they have at the University of Florida, where that is what they call that kind of work. Um, however, uh, Northwestern, where I was, didn't have, um, did not have an applied focus. So I, I'm not sure we really, to what extent we ever really spoke in those terms. Um, that department is, yeah, not, was one that tended to prepare students for, to pursue tenure track professorships in, in anthropology. And so you said that when you got out, the work you were doing early on was not all that different than what you're doing in UX today. And you threw out the term human-centered design. Were you, did you already become aware of that term? And were you actually thinking about what you're doing in that context? Or now is it just in reflection? This is all in reflection. Again, at the time I was unfamiliar with, I, I did not know that this entire field existed. So my first job out of graduate school was working with Oxfam UK, and um, they brought me in to embed with their response to the 2014 Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And what they wanted from me was, um, essentially, by the time I joined their humanitarian team responding to the, the Ebola outbreak uh, in Liberia and Sierra Leone, <clears throat> their teams on the ground had come to understand that what they were facing was no longer a problem of messaging or just giving people information. A lot of people in their areas of operation, um, you know, could list symptoms, modes of transmission, basic ways of preventing uh, infection, but weren't necessarily acting on that advice. And some of the reasons for that are unfortunately very familiar to all of us now. But at the time, there was this need to kind of dig below the surface and understand what might prevent people from acting on advice they already had to protect themselves from a really serious and dangerous illness. So they had the idea of, you know, what if we brought in an anthropologist to try to understand maybe some of the cultural and social factors that we're not aware of um, that, might be in, that might be informing um, this reaction and help us improve our response, um, both kind of like day to day and in our longer term strategic planning. So again, I, I feel like that, that was a, what I was trying to do was use this really similar approach where um, very, very quickly um, employing some basic quick and dirty qualitative methods to gather data in the field and, and bring that back to my team and, and talk to them about how we could improve 
what we were doing to better address the needs of the groups that we were trying to to target. And out of curiosity, what did you find there? Because, you know, as, as you talk about the problem, I think of, you know, the problem of like trust in institutions today and social media and yeah, maybe I'm jumping ahead and maybe, maybe there's an overlap, maybe there's not, but is there, is there anything similar? Oh my goodness. Yes. Again, all of this would, will be so familiar to all of us by now. Um, but a lot of it came down to fear, um, a lot of misinformation, distrust of the government and, um, international actors that were coming in to try to address the outbreak, um, rumors about vaccines, rumors about the, um, um, the preventive measures that people took. So for example, spraying chlorine was a way to disinfect um, spaces where an infected person had been. And there were rumors that, that, you know, that chlorine was dangerous to humans and was actually poisoning people. Um, There was, um, there's also just a lot of kind of, I think really basic human reactions to the unknown and to fear and, to stigma uh, about illness and um, people had had early on some really incredibly scary experiences with some of the teams that had brought in to try to help. So for example, um, you know, seeing family members taken away by teams in PPE, which honestly looks really strange and scary. Um, People in kind of like these moon suits taking your family member away into um, what we know to be an Ebola treatment center, but really looks like some sort of, um, I don't know, camp environment, that person disappears because early in the the pandemic, um, tracking patients was not, um, was kind of disorganized. So some people would just disappear uh, into those centers, never come out again. The family wouldn't know what happened to them. They were perhaps cremated before the family had a chance to even learn that they had died. So, you know, understandably that produced reactions that like, actually, you know, we, we shouldn't be sending our families um, to these treatment centers and, and the intentions of the people running them are, are not good and um, that kind of reaction. Got it. So you obviously have a passion for the health space. Why? Tell me about how you became aware in UX and why the pivot there were a lot of factors that went into the pivot. And the first one, to be honest, was just the struggle to figure out where my skill set fits in the world. Um, on my way out of graduate school, I did actually make a, a really, um, really honest effort to try to continue in an academic track. Uh, I, I, um, I loved what I was doing at the time. And so applied for fellowships, applied for those, um, you know, assistant professorships. And it was not really working out for me. Other cultural anthropologists um, may be familiar with um, sort of the bottleneck on, on, you know, stable tenure track positions at this moment. And, and I was facing that as well. At the same time, I think my ambivalence about pursuing the tenure track may also have come through. But from there, um, again, my department was not one that was hoping to prepare students for, for, other types of work outside of academia. So um, even if they wanted to, my advisors were not prepared to help me figure out what else there was out there that I could do. So it was just this process of trying to to find that out. So 
after working for Oxfam, um, I spent some time looking around and I was really lucky to land um, the ACLS Public Fellows Fellowship. And so for anyone in your audience that's not aware of that, I highly recommend uh, applying the next time it, it comes up. I believe it's now called the Leading Edge Fellowship. And this is for um, students of grad, uh, people with PhDs in the humanities and social sciences who are interested in perhaps public sector work or nonprofit work. Um, and they <clears throat> basically choose a cohort of um, recent PhDs and match them with a, a number of institutions um, that are looking for uh, for support. And it's, it's meant to be a win-win where um, this institution or nonprofit or agency basically gets your labor for a year or two years and they don't pay for you. This is paid through the ACLS. And the ACLS is trying to make a point about how people with the kind of backgrounds we have do have a lot to contribute outside of academia. So I landed a research and evaluation position with the International Rescue Committee, um, the, a, a nonprofit organization that supports refugees globally. Uh, my role there was kind of... Um, half kind of more academic research and half more monitoring and evaluation research, um, which, you know, tends to have to do with um, defining very precise indicators and measuring progress along those indicators for your program. So you can, you know, understand whether your interventions for, for a particular group are actually working. And then um, part of that is then taking that back to whoever is funding that and convincing them to keep funding you because look, you know, we're making progress along these indicators for this program. Through that, I found out that monitoring and evaluation was not a good fit uh, for me and also met for the first time someone doing work in what I learned was human-centered design and user research. This was someone who was in the IRC, who I think was coming from more of a UX design background, but she was doing this amazing work having to do with um, creating materials to address domestic and sexual violence in West Africa. And I, I heard about her work and was, you know, just like, well, how do I do what you're doing? That sounds like exactly where I want to be. And she was like, well, have you ever heard of UX? <laughs> and I, I really, or human-centered design, and I, I really hadn't. And that inspired me to start looking into that as a potential track and a, a place where it seemed like this skill set was valued. Um, <clears throat> so after the fellowship, um, or actually during that fellowship, spent some of that time um, attending the EPIC conference and, and learning a little bit more about the field and who was in it and what kinds of work they were doing. Um, and through that was really struck by, um, I was drawn to it because I, I remember feeling like there was a level of methodological innovation that I wasn't seeing in the spaces I had been in previously um, that I hadn't seen in kind of more traditional academic anthropology and that I hadn't seen in um, the nonprofit space. I mean, partly just as a function of, of budgets and scale a lot of the time and the opportunities that are available in industry. You know, if you're working for a company like Google, just, you know, having the budget to do pretty much anything. Um, and just felt like also people were tackling these really, really interesting kinds of questions. I, I met people that were working on autonomous vehicles and um, working on, um, oh gosh, all kinds of different industry spaces. Um, at the same time, it was really fascinating coming in as someone who had more of that um, 
you know, nonprofit background, um, talking to people who had, had taken on, you know, for example, the ethos of like, we move fast and break things. And it was like, cool. But like, if you work in the public sector or the nonprofit sector and what you might break is someone else's life, you know, how do you, how do you balance kind of, how do you get, mitigate risk for, for marginalized and vulnerable populations at the same time as, as having this like, yeah, we take risks and break things kind of mentality. Yeah, um, and you said in the nonprofit sector, but really even in the for-profit sector, as we're learning. Yeah, yeah, that there is some of that. Um, yeah, so from there, there was another period of kind of being uncertain and in between things and trying to figure out what the next steps might look like. Um, but during that time was, um, again, lucky to just land a short-term contract position at Google. And I was hired by another anthropologist because she understood exactly how my skill set might transfer um, in a way that I wasn't even, I think, very good at articulating at the time. And more to the point, she was there to help me make that transition and learn the language of, of user research and understand some of the methodologies and approaches that might be different from the, the fields and spaces that I had worked in before. And that kind of launched this pivot into to user research. I, I realized that like um, this was an extremely good fit for the way that my brain works and what I like to do and um, yeah, the kind of skill set and background that I have. At the same time, I was, um, I really missed the sense of mission I'd had in an organization like Oxfam or, or IRC. So where maybe my day-to-day -day was less satisfying, but I had the overall sense of mission. Now I had this really satisfying day-to-day -day work, but um, less of that sense of mission about the particular product that I was working on or the project. So I was thinking, okay, you know, I will put however many years into to building this skill set um, in the field of user research. And then maybe eventually I can figure out how to transition this back to kind of more social impact work. Um, so I took one or two other contracts with uh, Blink UX, which is another, uh, which is a small consulting firm in Seattle. And then with Etsy, who I loved working with. Um, but during that time, saw a job opportunity come up with Anthrotech, um, which is a human-centered design and user research consulting company that works um, primarily with um, public agencies and nonprofits and then some corporations with kind of a social impact focus um, and applied and, and, and got the role. And just, I, I'm thrilled to be with them because I feel like I had this idea that I had this very long-term plan to move back towards social impact work and just landing this role <laughs> maybe three years off of what a horizon that I thought was much further out. Um, so with them, I'm now in a user research role, um, working with a variety of clients. Again, a lot of them kind of federal or state agencies or nonprofits. Well, congrats. That's really exciting that, you know, you've sort of already found your way into what you wanted to do. Before we speak a little bit more about what you're, what you are currently doing, I'd like, if you wouldn't mind, you said that you realized evaluation wasn't for you and then you realized UX was. And so for anybody out there who is, you know, maybe still trying to figure out what path they, they want to go down, 
I appreciate that this is somewhat individual, but is there anything that, you know, what did you learn that helped you figure out that evaluation wasn't for you and UX was? Like what was, what were the pros and cons? I, I remember feeling like at the time that monitoring an evaluation, it is research. It is a kind of research and you do use very similar approaches. Um, but it felt like research that was very constrained and was constrained by, for example, just the need to determine whether or not a particular program was working. So, um, you know, we have this English as a second language program can we say that this number of students have advanced this number of levels in this amount of time, you know, so that is what meets our goals to say that this program is functioning well and should continue to be applied. That is really important work. I just found that for me personally, uh, it was more quantitative than um, it's really, um, really fits my skill set very well. Um, I'm, just less adept at quantitative research and find it less of a flow state activity than, than the qualitative. Um, and yeah, it just felt like the goals tended to be more narrowly defined than, than I would have liked. And, um, I remember those being like the two factors that, that stood out to me and then moving into User research, I, I tend to draw more heavily on a qualitative skill set. There is still some quantitative work in there, but I don't spend a lot of time entering data into Excel spreadsheets, um, which I remember doing a lot of in my monitoring, monitoring and evaluation work. Um, and I feel like there have been more opportunities to, again, tackle some really interesting questions about what people need, why they need it, what form they needed in, what that should look like. Good. Now you also, when when discussing your journey to UX, you were talking about going to Epic and what that reminds me of is really, uh, you know, it's, it's networking. It comes down to networking. You didn't use the word, right? But, you know, essentially so many of our jobs are found that way. And either just in the form of like informational interviews that kind of help us discover topics or to actually get the job. Uh, and you also spoke of how, you know, the individual at Google, the hiring manager was an anthropologist. And though maybe you didn't know them ahead of time, that sort of relationship really helped. So, you know, I'm just curious to hear your thoughts. Were you thinking about it as networking and were you like really on the path to do that because you realized the value of that or did it just naturally happen that way? No, I was thinking about that. I, I did skip the part of the story where I, I spent, I mean, I think at least six months taking everyone I could think of in Seattle to coffee. And this was pre-pandemic, so you could do that. Um, because at the time I was still thinking about um, maybe, maybe two or three different potential directions. Another direction that I was considering at the time was um, there are a number of kind of small more business consulting firms in Seattle that um, their, funder, their funding tends to be primarily um, Gates Foundation, PATH, organizations like that. And they do a lot of the actual, um, you know, research or program work that Gates funds. Um, and I, you know, coming from that global health background, I was really attracted to the kind of work they were doing um, with funding from places like PATH and, and Gates. 
Um, for example, I, um, oh gosh, got most of the way through an interview process with a small company um, that does really interesting work having to do with vaccine access. What I found in that space was that I, I, I got stuck in this terrible over-underqualified space where people saw the PhD on my resume and, and felt like I must be really over-specialized in research and really very highly qualified, but, but only in that particular skill set. It was really hard to convince um, you know, people in hiring positions that, that I also had like the project and program management experience that I needed to do kind of more managing, management consulting work and, and to make that translation where like managing a research project is project management. Um, and, and I can shift this skill set. Um, it just, I just wasn't articulating that story in a way that was convincing to people in that space. Um, so I, I spent a lot of time networking in that space, networking with people that are, that do kind of more, um, I think communications type work, um, and then networking with people in this, you know, human-centered design and user research space via Epic and, and conferences like that. But it was really, it was a very intentional undertaking. I wanted to know more about what potentially was out there that I could do and, and who was in roles that I thought were interesting. And who were those people, again, that I, I heard about what they were doing and had that, like, how do I do what you do? Um, feeling, how do I get where you are? Now, you've said also a few times about the way you were communicating your values. So were you refining that message as well? Were you, you know, were you learning, essentially iterating on it? And, and did you, you know, in, in now in retrospect, anything you've learned from that process? I should say also that um, through the ACLS fellowship, we had a little bucket of money through that that was specifically intended for kind of career development. And I used the last bit of it to actually join a career counseling group. Um, this person is now in on the East Coast. By the time uh, she was in Seattle, her name is Erin Eward. And she her focus is actually helping people um, who want to transition their careers into a social impact kind of space. And she helped me um, on a more formal level do things like define what my values were and think about how to tell my career story in a way that was compelling and um, maybe connected the thread between what I had been doing and what I wanted to do. Um, so that was really helpful. And then the rest of it was kind of just the iteration um, that happens when you network with a lot of people in a period over a period of time. And uh, also, like, apply for and interview for a ton of positions. <laughs> so, yeah, there was definitely um, a lot of practice, whether I liked it or not, in refining that story and, and creating this narrative about where I'd been and where I was going. Great. And it obviously paid off because now you are in the social impact role. So let's talk about that a bit. So since you have this passion and you've now you know found yourself really doing what you want to do, uh, tell us a little bit just about, you know, what UX really looks like in this space and, you know, what is the opportunity to bring human-centered design really to social impact work? These are really big, really big questions. Um, 
One thing I've been thinking about recently, particularly in kind of the the, the space with public agencies, is just the importance of of making things work for people, particularly things like public websites. And um, right now, a lot of the practice the projects we're working on tend to be website redesign projects because the pandemic, you know, when everyone went home, a lot of these uh, federal and state agencies realized like, oh, people can't reach us because our website is disorganized and has all this legacy content that, you know, doesn't have a place anymore. We've just been adding to it. And um, the public needs to be able to reach us, whether, you know, we are responsible for healthcare or employment security or, um, you know, uh, early childhood education. So a lot of it has been focused on making services for the, the public actually work online and, you know, also having uh, a focus on accessibility. Um, I think there is just, there's still a lot of kind of deeper outstanding questions though about, how to do this work really well. Um, one thing that I've been thinking about recently is that a lot of the work I do still feels um, a little bit top down, that the people at the agencies or organizations or companies themselves are still the ones kind of deciding what the problems are and we're helping them decide how to kind of approach those problems and, and solve for them. And, I, I feel like it's still really rare to have an opportunity where you take a more participatory action research approach where you start with a community partner and, you know, begin with asking them what they think their needs are and then moving through that process with them uh, where they have more say in defining the problem, defining what they think the approach should look like, uh, defining what their goals are and, uh, you know, how to integrate research in a process of iterating on a solution, that kind of thing, all the way through, you know, some sort of um, end project or process or strategy or policy or whatever it is. And I still think about like, and wonder like, where are those opportunities to really do that kind of community engaged work? Um, and I also still think about like how how do I bring this skill set back into that global health focused work that I was doing earlier in my career? I think there's still a ton of opportunity in that field to integrate kind of that end user experience um, or again like their needs and perspectives into the programs and policies of organizations operating in that space. Why do you have any thoughts on why most companies aren't doing that yet? Because it's hard. <laughs> if it were easy, people would just be doing it, right? But you would have to actually really prioritize that. You would have to um, prioritize it, prioritize it in a way that you're backing that up with the budget and giving researchers and community partners the time to do the work. And that's really rare that um, any company or organization feels like they have the time to set aside for those kinds of activities or the budget, especially if you're in like the public or nonprofit space. Do you think it can be done rapidly? That depends on what your goals are, right? When I worked for, worked for Oxfam, um, 
I was working with water and sanitation engineers. And one of them told me that there's this cliche in engineering that you can have cheap, fast, and high quality pick two. And I was like, oh, well, that's research too. Um, Because at the time, I I felt like I was under a lot of pressure as a researcher to deliver really deep, you know, human ethnographic insights on this very compressed epidemic timeline. Not just compressed because that was our goal as an organization, but because in an epidemic, like every minute really mattered, like it meant more infections and, you know, potentially more deaths. Like the stakes felt very high. Um, But doing that work rapidly, as you know, um, you get what you get. Uh, You get insights that may or may not be very deep and you have to move forward with those, right? Luckily, you know, in this space, we often have the chance to iterate. And in that space, you know, I was returning to the field every day to kind of, you know, ask similar sets of questions over and over and over to try to gain more insight. But um, it wasn't the kind of, um, that wasn't kind of the kind of time that I had been accustomed to as an academic anthropologist, where I spent years with one community in one location, kind of trying to learn everything about their context in order to kind of uh, then spend three more years creating a, a, a dissertation that would, you know, hopefully dig below the surface uh, in that way. So I'm not, yeah, like those engineers, I'm not sure whether you can do cheap, fast, and deep insights. So with this in mind, tell us a little bit more about Anthrotech. Sure. Um, Anthrotech is a small but mighty and rapidly growing company. Um, it was founded by a woman named Suzanne Boyd, who comes from a cultural anthropology background herself as an undergrad, um, but then has really made her, her name and her career doing this kind of work for, um, for the public sector. And um, one of the reasons we do a lot of work with um, especially Washington state agencies is that she's really built over time um, really great uh, client base and word of mouth uh, through helping public agencies improve their, um, not just their websites, but some of their systems and processes as well. Um, there was a large project several years ago before the pandemic to help redesign um, local transit systems, you know, and, and use ride-alongs with, um, with people in the public to help from kind of end-to-end make that a better experience for for the public. Um, What else can I say about about Anthrotech? Uh, It's been growing really rapidly in the last couple of years, again, actually because of the pandemic. um, And a lot of organizations and companies and agencies realizing that they needed to be accessible digitally and they just, they weren't uh, and wanted help making their digital and online presence work. I have seen uh, quite a number of jobs posted over the past, whatever it might be, you know, year, year and a half. So for people who are listening, just out of curiosity, are those remote jobs or would they need to be in Seattle? They are remote. We now have, I now have colleagues all over the country. So certainly if people are, we are still hiring for a couple of positions. So if people are interested, yes, absolutely. Um, you can find us at anthrotech.com. I think it's anthro-tech. Uh, there's another anthrotech out there that does uh, completely unrelated work. Um, 
but we are hiring remotely for a couple of different positions. And um, we do a number of things. We have people that are user researchers. We also have designers. We have people that are focused on content strategy, people that are accessibility specialists, um, people that focus on change management. So uh, we try to offer a variety of different ways of uh, helping our clients. Um, and our niche has been more kind of social impact focus. Uh, we do have some um, big tech and corporate clients as well, but try to uh, maintain a balance with um, with that public and nonprofit work. And what really excites you about that space? Yeah, I know. Obviously, I know the space interests you, but what about like UX in that space? Are you seeing any opportunities here in the near future? Yeah, it's been a really interesting space to enter um, because, again, I, in a lot of cases, you're operating with some sometimes tough but also really interesting constraints that you don't have in a private company. You know, laws, regulations. Um, for example, I'm working with one public agency now, one state agency we're helping them redesign their website. They have to how they they are legally required to house various types of content. Whether you know whether we think it makes sense in their information architecture or not, or and in the content hierarchy that they have, they need to have it there. It is a legal requirement. So um, helping organize that can be a really interesting challenge. And there's a lot of there is a lot of work to be done to, again, make make these things work for the general public. You know, no matter who you are, you need to be able to access the um, access these um, these agency sites. There are bureaucratic constraints. There are budget constraints. I, that adds some some challenges to the work that we do. How about recruitment? Um- is it difficult to get to, you know, to constituents? Yes, it can be very difficult to get to constituents. I think that's another big issue that we confront in this space, whether you work for Google or whether you work for a small company or for a state agency. Um, how do you reach, by definition, how do you reach harder to reach populations? Um, even at Google, that's something that we our team was working really hard on and we didn't have any easy or fast answers of um, how to get, for example, outside of the Seattle tech bubble. If our, if our usability labs are located here, you know, how do we get outside that and actually talk to people that use these products or want to use these products or could be using these products, but we are not reaching. And, you know, these remote tools can be helpful uh, in terms of like reaching beyond the geography, but then, you know, you're asking people to have a particular, you know, some baseline tech setup that not everyone's going to have. So, you know, how do, how do we expand beyond our typical pools of, of research participants? Have you found anything creative to help you do that? One thing that we were talking about at, um, in the team I was working with at Google was um, taking a van uh, a research van that they have on the road and um, yeah, using that to get way outside the Seattle <laughs> tech bubble and perhaps do intercepts um, or, you know, more quick kind of moderated usability sessions or research interviews with people outside our usual 
places of operation. Um, there could be some, I think, some really opportun- interesting opportunities to reach groups and individuals that aren't often talked to about what they want and need and how they would go about using it. I like so, the research van idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was really excited about the research van. And then this was February, 2020. So, you know, then guess what? <laughs> you know, you, you seem to be involved in a number of things. I uh, you know from talking with you before that you have an upcoming chapter. So you mind just sharing some, some of your, you know, some things that you have going on talks, the chapter. Sure. I, I'm very excited to find out that um, a book that the editors have been working on for quite a long time is now out on Bergen Books. It's called Profiles and Anthropological Praxis. Um, I have a chapter in the book that talks about my work in the Ebola epidemic. Uh, and it the contributors include a number of other anthropologists that have done different types of applied work. And what's cool about this particular book is that it's not... Um, it's not so much focused on, you know, the, the, the research questions or <clears throat> like the, the content of the research. It's, they're not academic articles. It's these individuals more talking about what it was like to do that work, what the process was and what they feel like the quote unquote anthropological difference of doing that work was like, why did it, why did it make a difference to have an anthropological perspective or approach or an anthropologist involved in the project? What did that do for the outcome? So it's, it's an interesting and and kind of different approach to talking about the work that we do. Um, Related to that. And interestingly, I, I think you actually have more information on this than I do. There will be a talk through a group whose acronym is GAP, so that, that will be June 11th, I think from 9 or 9.30 to 12 Pacific time. And yeah, I also plan to be at the AAA meetings in Seattle this year. So, you know, would be happy to connect with people there if they plan to attend. Great. And if people can't make it there, where else could they get in touch with you? The main place to find me is on LinkedIn. Um, I think I'm pretty easy to find Um I don't know how many other olive miners there are on LinkedIn, particularly that do user research. So, um, yeah, people are welcome to find me and, and connect with me there as well. Great. Well, thanks very much. Appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, it's been great talking with you. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to the Anthro to UX podcast. To learn everything you need to break into UX, visit anthrotoux.com. There you will find all the podcast episodes and career coaching resources. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.